0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Thaddeus Patrick, who is a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy and a counselor and somebody with a long-time dialogue with his own psychology and the psychology of others. And in this conversation, we continue with my investigation of Eastern Orthodoxy and talk about the aspects of orthodoxy that contribute to mental health, to self-discovery, and to becoming, generally speaking, a better, more fit, and perhaps even happier person. Again, Thaddeus is a seasoned counselor, and if you like his vibe, I'm sure he'd be up to speaking with you. So links to his work as well as his socials are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Hadius Patrick. Thaddeus. Thaddeus. Why did I yeah. have Thaddeus? Twitter, I use the three-bar
1: cross emoji as the T, and people every once in a while think it's Haddius because they don't realize that that's a T. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. And uh, is that a, 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 a bestowed upon the name? Yes. Yeah, Post my birth. legal name is Shay.
1: Yeah. And then I converted to Orthodoxy uh, seven years ago. Okay. And so my patron is Elder Thaddeus of Vitovnica. Of what? Vitovnica. It's a town in Serbia.
0: Oh wow. Okay. Is that um is that a part of your like heritage genetically or historically?
1: Or? No, that's my my chosen orthodox patron. Okay So his book was was incredibly influential to me. And inspired my coaching practice that I do today.
0: Okay. Yeah. What quality or how did you find the book? Maybe there's a story there. I, uh, I, Bible college
1: graduate. And about a year afterwards, when one of my, some of my friends introduced me to orthodoxy, they kind of, I like to say, tricked me into going to a monastery with them. Um, and when I was, and I hated it, but when I was leaving, Um, the monks gave me a copy of uh, the book of his life and teachings and that was the first orthodox thing i encountered where i was like whoa there's actually something really interesting about this and that book later was just very influential in my life um, to a lot of my like mental and spiritual stability that i found so
0: Hmm. yeah so bible college huh that's something we share yeah. What, what decided you on that? Or were you consigned, conscripted?
1: Um, I was in a state of I have no idea what to do with my life. And mm. I was working in youth ministry stuff. So I originally went there to get a youth ministry degree. And while I was there, I realized that I had more of an affinity for psychology. And so I switched majors. And uh, very glad I did because becoming orthodox evangelical style youth ministry just does not have very much relevance
0: (laughs) wait so you isn't evangelical youth ministry isn't that psychology or is it it's all reverse psychology and but you wanted to study positive psychology
1: games like how to run games and how to how to manage the misbehaviors of youth and uh so yeah
0: huh yeah that doesn't sound a lot of
1: outreach programs. Okay. Uh,
0: it's for a certain person, but you, I guess you have more of an intellectual, uh, thirst hunger.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I'm a very big, like personal growth person. Um, I want to understand myself. I want to know what's going on in myself. I want to know why I'm so unhappy with life. Hmm. Um, and those are the questions that I, you know, like I'm I would, my, my coaching practices, like people with existential problems come to me where they're just like spiritual seekers sometimes. And people who are like, you know, asking about theodicy and, uh, you know, do we actually exist? Are we living in the matrix? Just weird stuff like that, that I myself ran through a lot. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I like, I like that world, but especially how to harness the things that happen to us and find meaning in them and grow. So I I think I probably should describe myself as like very interested in the intellectual, but I think I was someone who was so inundated with that. Like I was very rationalistic and, and I've switched to being someone who's very experiential. So I think of my life more like intellect, stopped being the chief and now it has its like little spot at the table. Um, but I'm a very experiential person these days. Yeah. So, um,
0: is that, so you you said theodicy is that just like the is taking theodicy and just mashing those two words together or is it something else
1: So I I almost never use that word. I just assume people some people know what it is, so I use it. Um it's it's like the the theology of suffering is oh. apparently what it means. So like the book of Job is a theodicy. A okay. man going through suffering and trying to find meaning and purpose in it.
0: So Okay. Yeah, which is very, that's uh, kind of uh, the bedrock. There was this intellectual movement in uh, the middle of last century called existentialism, and it was never really defined, almost like postmodernism, but I I guess people have a definition Mm -hmm. for postmodernism, but it became this kind of existentialist or you're an existentialist. And there's a lot of French continental thinkers and, uh, you know, like kind of this tradition, they were, you know, they spoke a lot about suffering. They spoke a lot about, um, self-actualization. Um, and there was a, from my point of view, it was really attractive to me in my early 20s because I'm looking for meaning or I'm looking for a way to generate meaning of my own in life. And what I stumbled upon, um, I don't know why, but was through narrative, even though I really liked philosophy and thinking um, and poetry as, as a form of expression, it was narrative that kind of bridged the gap. For me. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about your experiential, how else would one convey that or make meaning out of that without using narrative? Or wouldn't narrative be like the way to do that? Or is there another way that you formulate, I guess, opinions or points of view? Or how does the intellect serve experience?
1: yeah yeah that's oh that's (laughs) really good questions um i actually i something i've said often i would love to make maybe a youtube video or about this at some point write a blog post i don't know um put thoughts out there but Hmm. i i would say that the archetypes of stories um you know kind of the joseph campbell hero of a thousand faces thing is something that kept me christian during my, like, intense questioning phase between Protestantism and Orthodoxy. Um, because, for example, I looked at the the Hindu claims about, like, being the one universal consciousness, mm-hmm. and I was like, this this isn't the everyman, this isn't the hero we see in all stories. This is more like the invasion of the body snatcher's hive mind. Mm-hmm. Which, like like, all of us being unified to the point of being one whole individual doesn't doesn't really win us over and the opposite extreme of this is like a radical individualist like one is we're actually all one self and we don't know it and the other is like this radical individualism that I just would say from my own experience isn't isn't a productive life like when I live for me and myself and I'm worried about my individuality and I'm in a constant mm. state of protecting it and defending mm. it it doesn't produce a good life and the in between of those is the Christ figure and the Trinitarian figure, which is the individual who lives for the other. Um, and that was something that kind of like, as I'm looking at stories and I'm like, we, we all have these different intellectual interpretations of reality. Like Buddha is encountering suffering, Job is encountering suffering. There, you know, all these people are coming away with different interpretations of why is life like this. But when I look at the people who are the heroes in many stories, and across religions, where people don't agree on religion, but they're all agreeing, like they're watching the same movies and they're all agreeing on what the virtuous character is. And that's not, you know, I mean, we have some stories that are horrifying monsters or the heroes, um, but, but there's a weird universality to all of this. Um, and also, when I see people die on their deathbed, they had a confident self image and then they lived in orientation to the beauty and well being of others. And that, that really swayed me that, that I said, okay, this is the truth. And what satisfies me, like what brings me peace will look some, I theorize it's going to look something like this. It's going to look like individuals living for the whole. They are individuals, but they live for the whole and the beauty of it.
0: Hmm. Hmm. You're bringing a lot of things up. How did you, so I guess intellectually, you went from youth ministry to psychology. And then did you intend to be a coach or a counselor or a practicing psychologist? Or was it at that point in college, was it just to learn? Was it just like kind of satisfying your curiosity?
1: Yeah, I I assumed I would do something related to psychology at the time. Um, solely because, I mean, I'm in college to like figure out how to make a living. Like I have to feed myself. Um, so probably I'm going to have to do something psychology related since that's what I'm getting my degree in. And that's what I'm most interested in. Um, so I did look at masters in counseling programs and after four years of college, I realized I was not someone who was built for academics, I would say, um, like writing papers that someone tells me to write, um, is just a tall order for me. Um, and I noticed that there, one of the, um, problems I noticed was that there were a lot of people who are academically oriented and stable people, what I would call a stable person. I would have called myself an unstable person. Um, I still would have called my past self that today. Uh, and they were getting into psychology, the masters in counseling programs, and they were dropping out after a year because they didn't understand an unstable person. Um, and they were academically oriented. So they got great grades and then they would drop out mm. where on the other hand, I had all these friends like myself, who were people who had experience with, um, what I would call mental puzzles and mental anguish. And they were, they did not have an affinity for academics. They had an affinity for helping people. And it it really irked me that the academic system was antithetical to equipping the people who had the affinity for for helping others. And most of the help I got was, I, I think I saw six different therapists a decade ago. And one of them was a very evangelical and probably hurt me more than did me any good. Um, three like of them, hurt you
0: like, isn't harmed you or set you like, up with the wrong expectations kind of,
1: yeah, uh, basically I, I guess you'd call it gaslighting. She wasn't intending to anything like that. I'm um, very well intentioned, probably help other people, but she did the, the, you're suffering cause you don't have enough faith. And years later I would take on a view that was somewhat similar to that. Um, but like with practical skills and with a little more discernment of when to say that. Um, but it, like I walked away, just like discouraged, like either she's right and I don't know what to do or she's wrong. And I don't know what to do. And either way, I don't know what to do. Like I've not been given an answer. I've just been given like this, con- like the puzzle has been made more confusing of what's wrong and why I'm unhappy. Okay. And three other therapists didn't help and two of them did help and most of them i could tell had an overlapping affinity for people and academics but most of the people that helped me in my life were people that would have never been able to get a master's in counseling and i actually i reached a point where once i started i graduated and i went maybe i'm going to do the masters in counseling thing but i'm not sure and then with over the next year, I was a preschool teacher, which I loved, um, but paid almost nothing. And it was during that time, friends from my Bible college were exploring orthodoxy and introduced me to it. And I hit a point in my orthodox journey where I realized in my own spiritual walk and my self-understanding that psychology was actually kind of an idol for me, or as Buddha would call it, an attachment. I was too attached to it. Not that it was bad, but my relationship to it was too much that it was like a savior and and a thing I got too much meaning and and protection from and so I, I there was a point at which i was exploring orthodoxy and i said god i'm 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 becoming more and more convinced of this orthodox thing and, the, and this elder thaddeus guy I really like i think that i need to just step away from psychology and if you want it to be in my life you force it upon me but i have to give it up i have to fast i have to like Abraham and Isaac the Old Testament, like I have to have this be something that exits my life. Um, and it was about four years after that, and this was about four years ago, that my priest and my friends and my parents and my sister and her husband were all saying, you have these skills in helping people with stuff, just in general talking through stuff, understanding them, wording it well, that they can understand it. You need to work in this field. And that's when I was like, I, I don't have a master's in counseling. I can't be like a licensed person. And I just made business cards at a website and started throwing out on my social media that I was this coach person, honestly. And I had my first clients were my friends. And then they wrote me testimonials that were like honest compliments of what I had done. And then from there, I just had random strangers contact me. And for the last four years, I've just been working with whoever comes my way. And so far, it's been very positive experience. Um, I have more testimonials now that aren't just from friends. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's been very fulfilling. It feels very much like a flow state, like that state of just like I'm in the maximization of my skills um, and the people like not I don't want to be someone who. It's like, oh, they all think I'm so great or what I do is great, but I've received positive feedback. Like it's just been consistently people have been like, I've had multiple people who say, I went to licensed counselors for $120 an hour. And then I came to you for 40 bucks an hour and you were far more helpful. And I I attribute most of this, um, a vast majority of it besides like a little bit of skill I have in explaining things well, most of this is from Elder Thaddeus, and early christian writers that i studied um i would say as a majority oh. of what they have given that kind of feedback it was due to that content huh. so and that's that's uh just to kind of bring it full circle that's what uh one me to orthodoxy also was that it was truly practical and truly therapeutic truly experiential it wasn't a bunch of dogmas that i had to say and like well that's demons and that's this and that's this like when the fathers i was reading these desert fathers and elder thaddeus who was only he proposed in 2004 so he's recent but i'm reading all these writers from the orthodox lineage and they're there it felt like they were tour guides to my heart and so as i'm reading this stuff and i'm going i'm gonna apply this i don't know if it'll work or not but i'm gonna apply it and try it and i'm noticing it's noticing it's healing me And then that's the kind of stuff I've talked with a lot of clients about. So it's, it's rooted in my own experience. And sometimes I have to tell them, Hey, I don't have experience in this. Like you might want to talk to this person or, or search for this kind of therapist or whatever. So.
0: Um, again, you brought up a lot, but I just want to (laughs) make one footnote. If somebody's saying that they've paid somebody else $120, um and it's not as valuable as forty dollars they're paying to you. It's a compliment, but you should probably raise your rates. Um what I and day before yesterday I spoke with your friend, uh Michael uh Whitcoff, uh who's uh Brother Augustine on uh, Twitter and on YouTube, and we had that was our second conversation. We we had one and published in August, and then we just had another one. We tried to tackle dogma, but we got sidetracked, um, and I ended up um, talking a lot more than I normally am uh, normally do about my spiritual life and that that aspect of my life. Um, But there's a I bring that up because there's going to be a lot of overlap between the talk we're having right now and the talk that I just had uh, with Michael. Um, so I don't, and I don't know how, which one I'll publish first, but there's like, there's a confluence there. And he spoke a lot about the church, specifically uh, orthodoxy. Um, and I always feel like I'm not using the right word. Is it, it's not Russian Orthodox, it's not Orthodox, it's just Orthodox Christianity. Like what what's the proper term? Should I call your faith?
1: Yeah, I usually... When I'm trying to be specific, I'll usually say Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay. Um, myself, if I'm just free talking, I'll just say Orthodoxy. Okay. Uh,
0: but yeah. Okay. It's... He described it several times as a hospital, or he put it in terms of this is uh, the path towards healing the soul, um, which sounds like it's a really ripe angle to take it. Using that metaphor um, and expanding on that metaphor into what you mean by healing uh, gives it a value um, that supersedes in my mind, like, this is the way, the truth of the life. This is, uh, you know, this is the this is correct belief. Like, orthodoxy means, like, correct thought, but this is a healing practice. This is something that, that mends you, that heals you. Um, that gives it a much, I think, it to the agnostic slash kind of culturally atheistic western ear having faith described in terms of uh healing uh there's more access to there it's not like somebody's like telling you these this is the right way to think or this is this is a belief system no this is a process of healing uh so with all that said you just said that the early church fathers and uh the, the desert dudes and the Thaddeus brother saint, um they are what inform you most. What is it about them? Like what are they how are they depicting life or God or the spirit or the human condition in a way that enriches you and assists you in, in the process of healing, if that's the the correct metaphor? Hmm and by yeah. metaphor i don't mean like it's fake i mean metaphor as in uh just uh, that's a conceptual term uh, we're using a conceptual term um i don't mean that you know it's like when i use the term myth i don't mean like it's it's a story that's just made up like there's a there's a content yeah. there that's that's greater than the explanatory content of the word like healing I means more than just like a band-aid or something like that it's a metaphorical way of approaching spiritual life
1: yeah Yeah. And that's, I think, I think we, uh, we Orthodox use that term. Um, St. Augustine who is compared to the average father is a little more, um, rationalistic. And I still, I don't think he's as rationalistic as the West that uses him, but Mm. even he said that the, uh, come into the church for it's a, it's a hospital for the sick and not a courtroom for sinners. Uh, And I think, I mean, In one sense that the answer to your question is like the entirety of the Orthodox faith, because one, one view that I have come to, and I think this is a a view we're very hungry for in a dogmatic world is if theology, if doctrine specifically, we Orthodox actually have a different usage of the word theology, almost the opposite, Hmm. uh, if the doctrine isn't useful to my actual everyday experience, it's pointless. If it doesn't actually affect the way I'm going to live and how I'm going to, my, my personal wording of it, this is in the fathers, but there's, they have lots of wording, but my favorite is to say that all, I think deep down all humans want peace. They either want to change themselves and their view or the world. Um, and we have different assumptions mm. and, and ways we think of doing that, but we want peace. We want to be okay with life. We might think that that's by material possession acquisition, Hmm. we might think that that's by social justice and and producing good in the world. Um, We might believe that's by having right thoughts, but we want, whatever we're doing, we want to have peace. We want to say, this is a good life and I'm okay with it. And I think for me, that was what I was looking for. Um, But I think if if our doctrine doesn't contribute to that in some observable empirical way, um, it's useless. It is, and I think that that's something that's woefully missed when people look at um, even like the ecumenical councils where they're they're discussing the the Christ being three and one and him having uh, um, two natures and all these debates that are going on um, for those for those fathers it was something intensely practical and I think reflected reflecting this also is what I referenced a minute ago that the word theology has the opposite meaning today it did back then um there are three sometimes four uh saints who received the title the theologian one was the apostle john um saint simeon the new theologian and saint gregory the theologian they're about like 500 years apart each one and uh i can't remember the fourth guy who's sometimes on that list But there were four guys who received this title. And of all the fathers who were already much more mystical than a lot of modern Western Christianity, um, these guys were the most mystical. They were were poets. They were the most poetic, the most um, difficult to decipher at times Hmm. what they were actually saying, not because of philosophical language, but because theology for them was the study of God was study in relationship. Like the way Hmm. I study my spouse not the way i read an online dating profile which is the way we 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 know about god and so for them being the theologian was to actually study god by being with him being his friend and being close to him and doctrine was important but it was only important i always say doctrine is like the bones which bones by themselves are dry and have no life but they are important for structure but the life is in the prayer and the encounter that's the flesh And the doctrine is just the structure so they're arguing about sometimes about the structure because you know there can be structures that could be dangerous um but as an end in itself it means nothing and Hmm. i think i think of c.s lewis in uh the great divorce he it there's a scene that takes place in hell and there's a bunch of theologians debating about the natures of christ around a table and, and they're in hell They're debating this doctrine and they're in hell. And I think that that's so insightful and meaningful. But um, St. Evagrius, uh, Evagrius Ponticus, uh, not a saint, but uh, definitely said some wise things in the early church. Uh, He was a desert father and he said, uh, the one who prays truly is a theologian and the one who's a theologian will truly pray. Um, Because it's that real communion and experience of who God is.
0: What's that like?
1: I think for us, well, I'll borrow, I'll borrow a, a quote from the Buddha. Uh, Buddha said, uh, "Only I, I, he said, I can walk you to the the boat in the river, but only you can cross in it." And we we very much believe um, that that n- true knowledge of God is something you know by encountering Him. And we do believe that the that I I would say God God can reach anyone anywhere, and I think He knocks on every heart. But there is a depth of intimacy with him that I believe, uh, from my experience, only happens in the Orthodox Church. Um, and how? The closest, like, The closest is
0: it The form? Is it the attitude? How does, how does orthodoxy orient you toward God in a way that is particularly attenuated, that, that gives you like a, let's say, a clean, clear, strong signal?
1: Oh, there's a, there's a lot of ways. Um, I'll, I'll give a metaphor for what I'm, I'm getting at. Um, I, one of the stories I tell people sometimes a little parable, I'm like, okay, imagine there's two guys and they've heard about music and they've never heard music before, but they hear people talk about it and they're theorizing like, okay, people are telling us there's these sounds they're hearing and they're making them feel certain ways. Like maybe it's a drug maybe it's like a cult or like some hypnosis they're doing that these sounds make them feel emotions. And then one of them goes to a concert and he comes back to his friend and he's like, friend, I heard it. I heard music. I heard the sounds that they call music. And the other guy's like, oh my gosh, what was it? And he's trying to explain to him. And he's like, well, well, let me tell you what they did. They took these metal strings and they pulled them real tight and they ran another string along it and they, and it went, hee haw, hee ha. And when I heard it, I felt like I was in love. And the friend is like, dude, I think you're crazy. Like, why would sounds make you feel like you're in love? And the the other friend goes, okay, never mind. Okay, there was another thing they did. They took an animal skin and they stretched it real tight and they hit it with a stick and went boom, boom, boom. And when I heard it, I felt like I was like a warrior, like going to war. And the other friend's like, dude, I think you were on drugs or something. Like, why would a sound make you feel like you're going to war? Like, it doesn't make sense rationally. But for those of us who've experienced music, no explanation is needed. When you hear music, you know what it is. You, no one gave you a philosophical argument. No one gave you a proof. You didn't have to read a book. You're an infant. You're in the womb and you hear it and, and, and uh, fetuses react to music. There's something so deep about it. For us Orthodox, the encounter with God is the deepest, most ineffable reality that there is. But it, I'm not going to. I'm not saying like literally we can't talk about it. But like just to know like at at the end there is this thing that is beyond all language. Yeah. But certainly on the way to that, there's lots of things we can describe. And. To to answer your question, like in a more tangible way, um, because we certainly need tangible answers. That's part of what the incarnation is. God, who is ineffable and beyond us, reaches down to where we're at. Yeah. Um. So that should happen. We know that. Otherwise, it does sound like dogmatic brainwashing. <laughs> um, but one one practical answer to your question is uh, Father John Bear, one of our priests. He talks about the moment that Christ is on the cross. And he, has he is experiencing every kind of death, not just death of the body, but death of status because people spit on him and shame him, death of friendships uh, because his friends reject him, Peter denies him three times, death of um, comfort because, I mean, it's not just like my life is going to end, he's also being tortured. Like all these kinds of deaths, he is experiencing all of them. And... I know that if I was in that moment, having been treated so unfairly, that if I looked out on those people, what I would be like, God, show them that they were wrong about me. Mm -hmm. Show them they were wrong. And what he says is, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And... and. A lot of us are out there seeking things like uh, what's the what's the answer to the universe? What's the divine? You know, trying ayahuasca or whatever it is. All these spiritual seeking things going on, going to gurus. And for for us and for me, that phrase right there is the vision of the divine. Like it's it's only words and stuff, but it's a vision of the divine. the the fabric The Christian claim and the Orthodox claim is that the fabric of the universe is A triune entity whose only interest, no other interest except love, except uncompromising, relentless care for the well-being of all three members in the Trinity and of everything else that exists. And in practice, what that means is that every way in which I personally am not like that is a moment where I call out to God in repentance and I say, God, if I was bearing you I would be just like that. If I was fully expressing your image and your likeness, which is what I was built for, Hmm. I would express that. And I'm not that. And I'm not beating myself up. I'm not like, oh, I'm so disgusting or anything like that. I'm just in total broken honesty before you. I'm not that. And I want that. And the more I come to you through all these things the Orthodox Church provides, the more I have the hope of that. And all these saints, like my patron, Elder Thaddeus, people saw in them that they had that love that would say, forgive them, they know not what they do. I um, mean, you know, I could tell like a hundred different stories of saints who all exemplify this, and some of them were modern and people witnessed them. But that's, for me, the fulfillment. And even outside of Christianity entirely, I noticed the people that die on their deathbeds in peace have that kind of love. And they, even though it's not that level, they live for others and they find peace and joy in that. And psychology notices it. And going back to the stories and narrative, all our hero characters are like that. I think of, of uh, in anime, Goku and Naruto, these selfless characters. Um, I think of just all these, I could point to, anyone can think of these stories, Marvel superheroes, whatever. But the heroes are always the one that say, I will give my whole life for the beauty of this person. And whatever maximizes it. And so we Orthodox believe, um, that God, even though we'll talk about in these these different ways that are simplifying for humans, you know, wrath, anger, we believe that above all those things is that God literally loves everyone. He loves literally everyone. and the fathers, the church fathers actually say, he loves the devil. He loves Satan, but Satan just has no interest in receiving that. So for Satan, it's since to to kind of, bring it full circle, everything that is our joy is to be with God and to be in perfect love with him, to receive love from him and to offer it back to him, which is what we believe we're doing in the liturgy. We actually say that line, thine own I have, thine own we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all, and we offer up the bread and wine back to him as the body and blood of Christ. We're acting out what the Trinity is acting out within itself. They unconditionally are a heartbeat of love between all three members, and we're all built for that. So, but if you don't want to engage in that, God is, uh, forgive me if for being crass, but God is not a rapist. There's no love in force. And so God will allow challenges in the same way we all challenge each other. But ultimately, if Satan says, I don't want it, God says, I will let you be what you desire then. And that is the only reason that like we describe you know for them it's an experience of wrath because what's more wrathful than a lack of getting to be in communion with God and so Saint John Chrysostom says the ultimate wrath of God is for him to not punish and to not give someone that opportunity to um, be transformed and challenged and humbled but God doesn't punish because he wants revenge um, and God, if it's not good for us to punish us, just like any good parent, he doesn't. He's, he's retributive when it's good for us. He's not retributive because he's obligated or he's angry at us. Um, he disciplines in the way that any loving parent does. I'm going to, like, I notice my kid is going to be someone that no one is going to like being around. So I'm going to give them a time out in their room, which they're going to hate. But the person they can become on the other side will be someone who's happier and more joyful and more loving. But if God sees it's not going to have that effect, he doesn't punish us. But he doesn't have to. And uh, our, saints, our saints say he He hates it. He doesn't enjoy punishment at all.
0: So, hmm. so you mentioned that you uh, were between religions at some point, or I guess maybe belief systems. Uh, you went from Protestant to Orthodox. What was the quality of disengaging from Protestantism or, or that form of Christianity for you? How did you notice that? How did the worm of questioning intrude upon your thoughts or what signals were you getting? I I would say I was always a doubter
1: and I was always a skeptic. And like I was convinced enough i can't describe where that is on the convinced spectrum but i was convinced enough that i was like oh it's it's christianity which at the time was protestantism i just didn't i just knew that catholics bad um like a lot of protestants uh, are taught um but i remember being f- like four or five years old and dry i like i visually remember this and uh sitting in the back of the car as my parents drove us to i think we were attending a presbyterian church at the time didn't know what that was um until not even until i was like orthodox because bible college doesn't teach that because it would discourage you if you understood that all these people disagree with each other but Mm -hmm. anyways i was riding in the back of my my car and as my parents were driving me to church i'm five so my sister was one in in probably a car seat and i'm looking out the window and i'm like god i'm not 100 percent sure that you're there but i don't think you're mad at me for that because like i i do want to be sure I just, I'm not. And I, and I think you see that my heart is sincere. And that was like, I remember that at five years old. And I think I've consistently been that person. Um, I just, you know, playing into that for sure. And this is something a lot of people who question their beliefs and go research, um, cults and whatever find, which I love reading about cults. Uh, I familiarity biases us, whatever we're raised with, whatever we're comfortable with, whatever we know, familiarity just naturally says that's true, because that's functional most of the time. If I, you know, raised by certain parents, and they tell me stuff all the time, and it's true most of the time, you know, if you eat that, you're going to be sick, I believe them. So whatever is familiar tends to be likely to be true. Um, so I was also there looking back based on just familiarity. Um, but I did think it made enough sense that i was like comfortable being there but i think as i went through bible college and i really you know around 20 um really started discovering like how unhappy and and chaotic my inner world was and how dysfunctional my relationships were with other people and i was really codependent i didn't realize at the time but i was looking to other people to save me um and to to be nurturing to me and all all my inner struggles um But I, I was, I was always a a doubter and a skeptic and a questioner and orthodoxy weirdly enough. Like I, I describe it like it's an in-between phase, but orthodoxy came before because that was what actually kind of like broke me. Like I remember, I remember going to that monastery I referenced, which was St. Herman of Alaska monastery where uh, father Sarah from Rose is buried. And I, remember thinking like hating all this stuff oh my gosh they kissed the icons and all these things typical protestant reactions and when i read elder thaddeus and he started to like move my heart a little i i was like okay well now i'm threatened (laughs) so i need to go study church history to prove that they're wrong because they're claiming they're this like unchanged church and i need to prove them wrong and so i went for i spent a summer googling Catholics against Protestants, Protestants against Orthodox, Catholics against Orthodox, atheists against Orthodox, like all these different groups and then reading some of the earliest Christian writings and very quickly I realized if Christianity is true the Orthodox have a way better claim to being the apostolic church. Like if if it's Christianity is true then whatever Christ and his apostles taught was the real deal and I I just like my Protestantism broke. Like, I very quickly was like, it doesn't make sense that for 1500 years, none of these Christians who lived these godly lives knew how to like, knew what Sola Scriptura was like that, those questions just decimated me. But once I hit that point, it unopened the door to like, okay, but what if you're biased towards Christianity entirely? So maybe it's this Orthodox group if you still want to be a Christian, but for intellectual honesty's sake, I got to look at some other stuff. And so I I dabbled in Zen Buddhism. Like I didn't go very deep, but I read several books on it. Um, I really admired what I was studying. I really was like um, I was. I've read uh, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki, who's a Zen master in America. I still love that book um, to this day. And I read the uh, the Upanishads, ancient Hindu poetry. Um, I was reading all this different stuff, and at the same time. I was still hanging out with my orthodox friends and I was dabbling in some of the stuff that they were were talking about and I read a book by it's it's a new age guru using Buddhism and Hinduism to explain quantum mechanics it's called The Dancing Wooly Masters and I had tried to learn about quantum mechanics and could not grasp it. Like three different times I would try a book and I'd just be like, what the heck are they talking about? And this book was where it clicked, like some of the implications of what we were actually discovering and how we bias things by observing them. And modernism has like convinced us we're, we're not biased like in taking a truly objective stance, which we can't, um, I don't believe anymore. And as I'm learning all this and I'm like, Oh my gosh, Buddhism's so cool. Quantum mechanics is amazing. Like I didn't, my rationalism that I'd been raised with that, that like love, I thought as an example, I thought I was like, why doesn't someone just write a book on what love is or on what beauty is? Like just explain it all in the mechanics. And then we can stop having all these debates about what's loving and what's beautiful, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was like truth, like logic was the height and then love and beauty and everything fell under it. And as I was reading this stuff, I realized I had it backwards that I liked logic and the intellect because they were beautiful. I liked them because they helped me love. It was actually the beautiful servant of these things rather than their master. And from there, and this is kind of the the tail end of my story, from there, when I was looking at the church fathers, I realized that every single thing that I loved about Buddhism and about Hinduism and about these different groups I was looking into, they were all in the fathers. The fathers already thought like this they uh just as one example um saint gregory of Nyssa in the fourth or fifth century said concepts something buddha talked about all the time concepts create idols buddha would say conceptualization creates attachment concepts create idols only wonder truly comprehends anything and i remember reading that and being like like, not only was I like, I think I like orthodoxy, but I was like, I can accept Christianity and also say that these Buddhists I read were right. Like it was a win-win for me because I was like, these, th- I love this Buddhist stuff, and I feel like I have to invalidate it." And here was these ancient Christians saying exactly the same thing. Hmm. So but I've always been a skeptic. One of my, my favorite of the apostles is Thomas. And in orthodoxy, we do not shame doubt. We only say it's bad when it's an excuse to do evil Um, but which is why the psalm that says there's a psalm that says the fool says in his heart there is no God but when you read the rest of the psalm it doesn't describe a man who's like I intellectually don't believe there's a God it says the heart and what it describes is a man who lives how he wants and mistreats people that's what it means to say in your heart there is no God is to live a life where you treat other people however maliciously you want like the villain in every story but doubt that's sincere, doubt because you want the truth. Um, that's 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 holy. And we actually say in our hymns on the Sunday we have dedicated to Thomas, we call it his holy doubt. And that for me was home. Like that was one of the one of the many things that won me to orthodoxy was I was like, if I'm doubting sincerely, God actually admires that. That's a seeking doubt rather than a shameful doubt. And that was something very different than what I was raised with. So, anyways, full circle of my journey of doubt. Um, I'm still a skeptic, and technically, I tell people theoretically, if I found out orthodoxy was wrong, I would I would switch belief systems. But if you ask me if I, in my heart, I actually believe that could ever happen, I would say no. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But for intellectual honesty's sake, sure, theoretically, but not not likely. So hmm. I'm still the skeptic. I'm still the doubter. Uh, I still I love Apostle Thomas for that sake. But hmm.
0: yeah. So, how how does this, um, the wisdom from the Orthodox tradition and all those fathers um, and saints, how does that manifest in the act or the practice of coaching? So...
1: A lot. So most of my, I have some clients who are, are outside Christianity, spiritual seekers. Most of them are to some degree Christian. Some of them are Orthodox, some of them are Protestant, a couple Catholics. Some are reverts, people that started Orthodox, left, did something else and are coming back because they realized they liked it there. They just didn't understand it is when they were a teenager in a rebellious phase. Mm-hmm. Um but a lot of my se- like times with a client. Some clients meet me just one time to talk about something. But when I have a long-term client, where I can tell it's going to be they're interested in that, a lot of times the first session starts with theology, and starts with some of the things I've said here in a really simple in a simple state. S- basically, um, like and and then once you have a, a that foundation, it turns to the practical. So it a lot of times starts with something like. Uh, and I'm doing it way simple just to be brief, uh, because clearly I struggle struggle with brevity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, God designed us to bear him in our heart and to whatever we encounter, to encounter that noetic experience, that d- direct, like I talked about music, direct experience of him through us. And... Where we fell was when we started thinking for ourselves. Now, what that doesn't mean, because a lot of people think this way, is it means, yeah, let God think and you don't think. No, co-think with God, like a spouse. You talk with him. You have your own opinions. And he likes that. He made you to be free. But he wants to chat with you, like a husband and wife chat about decisions. And so when Eve is tempted by the devil with these thoughts to to look at the fruit and and aspire to something that she was built for, but to do it based on her own reasoning in her own way—that's where the problems begin. What she should have done was to, was say, "God, I want your opinion on this. Does this make sense to you? Should, is this a good idea? Should I do this?" And she just looks at it and she goes, mm, "Makes sense to me." And it's like a kid being like discovering pornography and being like, "Oh, this looks really pleasing," um, but it will destroy you. And the the reality is, and this is something I think we miss in the West. The fathers say that man was actually designed to eat that fruit. It was just going to be when he was prepared, like a child growing and then engaging in sexuality. He was going to have this knowledge of good and evil, and he's supposed to become like God. Um, the New Testament talks about becoming partakers in the divine nature. So when the devil tempts her, he's not just telling her a lie, like when he says you won't die. He's telling her a truth, but with a hack to get there, uh, A malformed way to get a valid desire and this is something i talk about my coaching a lot realize that any sin you're doing anything that's broken i mean it depends on the client if i'm gonna use the word sin um it just means miss the mark it's a very broad word but anything you're doing that's that's making you miserable or is an addiction or whatever it is a attachment uh, idolatry um you're doing it because you want something beautiful so don't beat yourself up that you're disgusting you want something beautiful but the way we're going to about res- getting to it is where the problem lies. And so being that most of my clients are Christians, we talk about how we have a prayer life, how we guide our thoughts. That's what my patron, Elder Thaddeus, is very focused on. His book is called Our Thoughts Determine Our Lives. Um, It looks a lot like cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time talking about all these different ancient Christian practices that have overlaps with psychology. Or even things like, where does fasting fit in all of this, and why do we fast? Um, that are with, that are are basically two steps. The fathers would say, one, purification, which is these malformed attachments, kind of evacuating them. That's what fasting is. Um, Saint Maximus the Confessor in the ninth century, he says, he says, evil lies not in food but in gluttony, evil lies not in sexuality but in lust, evil lies not in created things but in their misuse. And this goes back to that, like, at the core is something beautiful. Um, But God is the inventor of all things. That's part of what it means to be the Logos. He's this inventor that thought up everything. And if we don't know the inventor, we misunderstand the invention and we use it wrongly. So in coming to be his friend again, we also know how the things he created would be used rightly. And so it's a natural process that by coming through prayer and coming back into communion with him, we go, oh, maybe I shouldn't you know stick that in there um, maybe that's a little bit too that's not not actually going to make me or anyone else happy because it's not according to my design and nature um, but but when we do things like fasting fasting is kind of like the stomach has become, um, Christ goes with the whip to the money lenders in the temple. And we're like, what does that mean? Are we supposed to whip people like who sell something at my church, like coffee? Uh, <laughs> but, and we're like, or us Orthodox I have parish bookstores. Um, but what it's what it's about is the heart. The, the heart is your temple. And when Christ goes in with trials in our lives, he's going through and he's whipping the the the, the uh, attachments. He's whipping the addictions. He's, he's, he's saying, I want to help you drive out these things that are keeping you from communing with me. And fasting is one of those things, We not because you know it's bad to sell things and not because food is bad, but because I, and me, like literally me, Thaddeus, personally, I have a, uh, gluttony is one of my main sins, I eat too much um, and constantly. Like fasting is to take a break from that thing that I have abused, not because it's evil, but because I'm not in right relationship with it so that it can come back into my life in a healthy way. And so, purification in the fathers, that first step is push the stuff out, take a break, have silence, push your thoughts out, push not forever, just for a break. And in that moment call him in we do this in our practice the jesus prayer we we still our minds some parallels to buddhist meditation but we call christ into the space we make lay aside all cares lay aside your thoughts and just call christ the the god of the universe to come in and be present with you and then when you go out you have that restored relationship where now when you engage with food you engage with sexuality you engage with whatever it is it's it's ordered rightly and it brings you peace and it stops being so destructive but it's for the beauty of the thing rather than for the sinfulness of it um so it's it's bringing it full circle two stages the fathers talk about sometimes they have three it doesn't matter it's not linear but purification is kind of the pushing out taking breaks from things we have a malformed relationship with not just sins but things like me when i talk about really about psychology and then the second layer is theoria vision of god calling him in so it's the out with the bad in with the good we sometimes do breathing when we do the jesus prayer where we breathe lord jesus christ take in christ have mercy on me a sinner pushing out things that aren't appropriate for our hearts mm-hmm. and so that's that's an example of like the basic model of what i'm doing when i'm talking to a client so i might recognize oh they're codependent like i was um people are that thing that God has that he wants in their life but they've put people in the temple on the throne they' they've made people the money lenders not because people are bad, not because they're bad but because they being born without christ this is part of what original sin actually is we naturally kind of guess at how to fulfill our own desires and so they take a break from the people that they're codependent on they practice prayer for those people instead of worrying about oh my gosh is this person going to leave me that's part of what elder thaddeus guided me to do think about them stop thinking about like this fear that i'm if i don't please them they're going to leave me think about them when you're in their presence go lord What can I sacrifice? And Mm -hmm. if I need to leave them for their sake, help me to do that and and fill my heart with you. So this isn't me making them my idol. This is you being given to them. Otherwise I'm a vampire. Otherwise I, I need life. I need blood. (laughs) which sounds a little scary, but like, that's what we're doing in the Eucharist. We get life from Christ because the Old Testament says the life's in the blood. If I don't have him, I become a vampire and I drink blood. I drink life out of other people. And those people who think they can rescue me, this is what happened with me. People who are rescuers, that's their thing. They drink blood by looking for that victim-rescuer triangle. We're talking about a spiritual reality. They look for those people who need help. And they think, oh, I'll be happy if, if I fix people. And they can't do it without God either. And then I'm that person who's like, yes, fixy people, come fix me and, and hug me and give me all my emotional needs. And, and we just eat the life out of each other. And then we both end up frustrated at each other and unsatisfied. And we move on to the next victim that still has blood left in us for us to drink. And so we fast from that blood, that, that making too much of creation. Uh, we see in the service worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and we instead push that stuff out and take breaks, and we call Christ into that space. And then we actually function in creation as priests, where everything that we encounter rather than us having the experience of us drinking the life out of it, hmm. receives life from us and feels, wow, like when, I meet, when you meet a person in Orthodoxy who's lived it a long time and you're like, you have a peace. I know I'm safe with you. I know that I could insult you and call you filthy names and you would still love me. Like you have that love of Christ. Mm. Um, and the first priest I ever met had that energy and was one of those few things that drew me to orthodoxy was I was like, you could say anything to him and it wouldn't faze him. He just cared about me and I could feel it. Mm. And, uh, Mm. Yeah. So anyways, that's a lot of examples, but like that model is the model I'm operating from, like individually identifying what's the beautiful thing this person is pursuing and how is the pursuit without Christ leading to them actually being really unhappy. And how do we one return to Christ fast and return to Christ, but also operate in a way that actually brings them back into a right relationship with that thing. So
0: yeah, (laughs) can I, um, thank you for that. Can I have you, um, carefully turn the microphone away from your shirt if unless the microphone is two-sided. I think just by flipping the earpiece, it's just rubbing against your shirt.
1: Oh, just, okay. Just I'll try the, and... Just
0: the, just the earbud. You might be able to twist it once so that the microphone's facing away from the shirt rather than uh, facing at the shirt.
1: I keep resting my arms on it, so I'll try not to... That's make... fine. That's fine. Anymore.
0: You said, uh, or you mentioned that something about being an unstable person. Like, what does that mean? What's the content of that? That could be that could be negative. Like, you can't stand up for yourself, or you're always breaking down, or you know, like you're fluid, um, or maybe kind of like some sort of borderline personality, or like you're always just like whenever you're talking to somebody like they become a container and you don't have any essential shape yourself. You just, uh, you know, you just assume the shape that, that you're given, or it could be the ability, uh, to conform to other people, to conform to different environments and to, you know, to grow up, uh, to grow through that, mature through that and see that as a a positive attribute rather than a harmful or self harmful, uh, attribute. It could mean all these different things, but what what was it for you, and how have how has the process of rectifying that been for you?
1: I I would say some of the pieces I've given earlier in a more negative sense, like uh, like I wasn't at peace, and I was a a person who um, my mood depends on circumstances. Like as as one is more attuned with Christ, and one sees that He loves you and that He has a good plan for you. The more you live by that, the more you don't have reasons to be terrified and afraid. Um, And I'm a big believer that that's not something you can just tell people, because like I said, I had that person who said, we don't have enough faith in Christ, and that's why you're so stressed. And like I said, I kind of have that view today, but the problem is, is you need the empirical. You need something you can, Christ says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say, read and believe blindly or i told you so (laughs) like he's like taste and see like go do science do a spiritual experiment um and see if this this is true um and i would say and and the results of that was more stability more consistency that my mood is not dependent on the circumstances that my uh what there was one saint who who talks about like you think it's loving because you do these nice deeds for people. But when they don't respond how you wanted them to, then you're angry. And he says, that's proof it's not real love. It mm. was self-serving. It was transactional. And I noticed that the longer I live this Orthodox spiritual life, I've been around Orthodoxy nine years. I've been Orthodox seven years. You know, I still have a lot to work on, but I, I can say that there's been change. Um, and so when I try and do something kind for others, I'm less blown and tossed by the waves of the sea of how they react mm. and mm. so yeah so stability is a lot of these things fearfulness i was unstable because i was afraid i was unstable because my happiness my mood not even real happiness but mood depended on circumstances and circumstances change the universe is fluid um, it does what it, it does comes and goes what may so hmm. Hmm.
0: and so we spoke a lot about, I guess, your coaching practice and then your internal life. What about in the intellectual aspect of faith? I think I, I've asked several believers this question. How does the the operation of the mind, reading, thinking, discussing, how is that a form of worship or how is that a form of uh, communion with God? And hmm. then how how is that developed for you
1: yeah um well i would say anything rational intellectual is just from the devil don't <laughs> 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 um <laughs> I, I i would describe it as it, a- a- everything that we have god wants us to hold but he wants us to hold it lightly not to clutch it tightly or not to say this is worthless and throw it away like whatever happens even our sinfulness this is something a very common theme in orthodoxy um even our sinfulness is something that god helps us find value in like we're supposed to war with it but in that warfare something uh, impeccable happens which is its own conversation but intellect should be held lightly and before intellect was something i grasped tightly and if i let go i'm going to fall kind of feeling and now intellect is something that where it's like no i'm standing on the rock like to borrow that christian um, that biblical metaphor, he's the rock. I stand on the rock. I can hold this lightly and I can use it and I can think about things and I can take guesses and be like, hmm, maybe this is what's happening in the old Testament. And I can, you know, do science, which is a use of the intellect. I can, you know, come up with hypotheses and test it. And, uh, but how I, how I used to be was, you know, um, we tested this until we know it for sure. Like that, that what becomes scientism, if you've if you've used that expression but now i can be like oh we did this experiment and it means this no maybe it doesn't mean that maybe it actually means this oh maybe that experiment was done wrongly my intellect being challenged doesn't threaten me as much as it used to like i'm not terrified if something i believed was absolutely intellectually true is wrong and when i come up with intellectual theories um you know i think oh maybe uh You know this happened I can I can take it or leave it easily Um, but I but it is it also is beautiful and that's the center I could like I said I could I could be too attached to it or I could say it's ugly and pointless and in the middle is to hold it lightly to say wow my intellect is beautiful I want to be creative with it I want to use it I want to involve it like a tool but I'm not gonna grasp it and make it my savior and and the thing I have to have I have to have these intellectual answers um, you know, if someone comes up to me and, and says, I think orthodoxy is wrong. And I think you're going to hell. Okay, cool. Like maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't think, I don't think you're right, but you don't think I'm right. But like, let's talk about it. Um, but it's, but I, 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 you enjoy the beauty more of what you, in what you do not devour, I guess would be one line that I would say when you don't devour a thing, but you still see its beauty. You see much more of its beauty. Um, one, one of the things that happens spiritually when we, um, you know, clutch and we grasp and we don't have Christ, the inventor, the logos revealing the beauty of things. We only see them according to how they can fulfill our desires. And this is what the word objectification basically means. Like I see a beautiful woman and all I see is that she's either going to fill my sexual needs or my emotional needs. She's not a whole person with like an infinite layers of nuance and things to discover. I could, You could pick one thing in creation and you could study it forever. The infinite God made this infinite creation and made infinite people in his image. There's so much to learn. There's no bottom. And yet I look at someone and I'm like, I hope you think well of me. That's it. That's all they are to me is just another little number in my YouTube fandom or, you know, another person that I'm going to speak to them and they're going to go, wow, you're so smart. Like that's all they are. We we chop people up into just this little tiny sacrifice and we sacrifice it to us. Hmm. And so what we what we want to become is people who have that stillness key part of the fathers is stillness and silence hesychasm the art of silence so that we hear god and we can have him more present in us and then when we look at things we're almost like floored like oh my gosh there's there's so much in a tree and that's not just something like we thought about intellectually. That plays a role. It all fits together. But there's something spiritual going on there. That's something the fathers talk about constantly is, um, that the more our, our heart, our noose, N-O-U-S, our heart is unclouded by all these passions and desires, the more when we see things in creation, we see them as God sees them. And we see their their essence, their depth, their nature. We see the deepest parts of them and all the ideas he had, which are infinite in creating them, all their beauty and their their appropriate usefulness that isn't objectifying. So that's something we're worrying with when we're trying to heal, is that when we look at something, we go, this is either useful for this thing I want, it's useless and we do it with other people where they do something a different way than we do and we're like that's not that won't fulfill what i would like you want to have plans and a schedule but i think it's better when things are open and unplanned and i'm getting into like personality types here as a yeah. spiritual thing yeah. well it makes um, me
0: think about what you were saying about if a kid's annoying maybe they're just annoying to you right yeah mm, you, you, yeah. Can, you can go too far by saying well let the kids be kids or let the boys be boys or whatever and not actually um called the best out of one another. And isn't Mm -hmm. there, isn't there a system of, of discipline or accountability in, in the church? Um, at least with confession. Um, not that, and you know, like there's a sort of corrective accountability process, right. Of calling each other to a better standard or calling out a person for being wrong or on the wrong path.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, Looking
0: at how the Orthodox Church
1: actually does it, um, one of the themes I see a lot, and I think a lot of people in online Christianity, online in general, uh, social media, would like would like this concept. Um, but a lot of fathers and saints say, basically they emphasize, let things be. Like it's mind your own business. Uh, Elder Ephraim of Arizona, who reposed a, a few years ago, a very holy man, um, he said like criticism is a great sin but orthodox are not linear like we're not saying literally criticizing anyone is a sin but he means like that attitude that critical attitude that's constantly looking for other people's faults um, father Seraphim Rose says if a man does not repent and look to his own faults the devil will give him a new job to find flaws in other people and so I would say that's kind of our default hmm. and then When we correct, it's considered an exception. There's a time for it, though, but it's something where it's an exception. It's something very serious, like compromising the faith. Um, Hmm. It's – sorry, spacing out there for a second.
0: Um, Well, I guess it's – perhaps it's about – Okay, well, this is this is interesting. So you, you studied uh, evangelical youth ministry, which you say was uh, helping to correct the flaws of teens. So you guys definitely, there's got to be teens in orthodoxy somewhere. At some point, there's got to be like kids that need a, a helping hand, right? So if a kid's going down, you know, like uh, drugs and sex mm-hmm. and all that stuff, like there's got to be some sort of paternal... Uh, discipline right or how does how does the church uh inculcate a disciplinary attitude in the fathers like not the fathers of the church but like the people who are fathers who are orthodox
1: yeah i i think a big a big part of it is that there there are um where i wanted to go and i spaced out um there there are people who are clearly assigned jobs so if you are a priest that's going to be the primary place where there's a lot of, of correction loving gentle but the you're going to be going to confession you're going to be having meetings with your priest once in a while where you use your spiritual father um paul uh the apostle paul actually laments in scripture to one of the churches he says i i'm sad there's not many spiritual fathers among you um and and this is something that's very important to have those mentors in that role and so somewhere bare minimum it's going to be the priest and it's also the father's role and and the mother's too but especially the father's like it is the parent's role to be correcting children to be disciplining them to be guiding them um and there's bishops to correct priests and when one of the bishops goes wrong sometimes the people hold them accountable um like if they're doing something very serious heresy or something a lot of times the other bishops all rally together to write letters to that bishop and say hey this is not okay." but it's usually something where it's like i would i like to start with um because you can see like the the um pastoral purpose like if you just say this is how you fix stuff some person who's new to orthodoxy goes and tries to fix everything and it's like they spiritually poison themselves so i always start with like the saints tell us kind of default to minding your own business
0: Yeah, yeah
1: but then we do have systems we do have penances we do have calling people out we do have instructions from scripture on to call people out so given that your first action similar to eve going all the way back to eve in the garden she didn't consult god given that your first action was humble sincere prayer before god and you still feel convicted to correct okay Hmm. then maybe gently and humbly go correct Hmm. um But what matters more is that you consulted God. If the whole problem is that the loving God is not in our hearts, then there is no correction that can be good without that being the foundation. So no matter what you do say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I think this with my intellect and I don't think you think that's wrong and I'm going to act on it. But you know, if I am wrong, have mercy on me and protect the other person from my foolishness and my presumptuousness to correct. And if I do say the right thing, you know, soften their heart and help it not go to my head, not go to my pride and my ego. And I, suddenly I think I can go around correcting people, protect me from my own act and keep and and help it be pure. And if I'm wrong, help me to go apologize to them and take the accurate steps, but be with me. And may this act not separate me from your love, like actual encounter of it, or separate this person. And that kind of prayer, man, if I live like that, if we all live like that, um, I mean, even just from a, totally secular side like if i just went purely say everything about christianity is wrong if i was just a secular scientific psychologist looking at people saying that kind of self-talk the world would change people would be so humbled even if they weren't talking to anyone but of course i'm like bordering on blasphemy to make a point by my own worldview (laughs) but i think it's an important point to make like this is the order of the world and i think the order of the world unlike the blind faith concept, the order of the world and whatever is the actual truth of what's going on are going to line up. The hero and the true religion are going to line up, the narrative hero, the archetype. like All these things should line up. So when psychology notes that these humble people who are constantly thinking about others are the happiest people, it makes sense that the very entity that formed us was of a similar reality. So I, I can never accept Allah of Islam because he's like the villain of every story. He's egotistical, uh, punishes people. You do one wrong thing and he's mad at you. Like he's like all of the worst father figures. He's like all of the mob bosses in like crime sh- television shows. He's like every show I watch where there's like a nasty villain. He's a lot like Allah. And every hero I love is a lot like Christ. And so for me, those things are, are very compelling. It all lines up. It all seems hmm. to be one whole. And that's what compelled me towards orthodoxy, was it was like I had found the one center of all the truths of the universe, from Buddhism to my favorite stories to, ev- to therapy and psychology. It was like, oh, this is the cross. This is the center, the pinpoint right here. Hmm.
0: You said that Thaddeus—I believe it was when you were talking about Thaddeus—you uh, were handed a book by him, and and he moved your heart. What do you mean by that? How do? You, what was being moved? What is it when when one's heart is moved? Mm. Yeah, that's a
1: good question, because a lot of times people can just make you really emotional and you think, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. When
0: when you were talking about um, music, I was thinking about, you know, worship services. And and one of the reasons that I uh, backed away from evangelical church was that they were singing like love songs to God. And it was like it was the wrong way to use music to enter into Mm. communion with God. Doesn't need God's not like your lover boy, you know, I'm sorry, but like, but that's just like, that was an aesthetic reaction on my part. Uh, Yeah. And I would say as someone who was in that
1: too, and really liked it, I think you're picking up on something accurate. Um, I, I could go off on that tangent, but I'll go back to your question. Um, of, of elder Thaddeus, what, what moved me? Um, I I could I could so first of all um Elder Thaddeus' book the first like third of it is his life and then the other two thirds is his wisdom and something i notice you know if if someone says like oh suffering is for this and you just use this this way and like if you go through suffering god has a purpose and it's like that doesn't help people very rarely sometimes very rarely a hurting person is ever helped by some like dismissive truism like that but when someone approaches you to guide you in that sort of way in your pain and you see that they speak from a place of tremendous suffering it's a whole different ballgame and elder thaddeus's life is one of suffering he was his mom died when he was a kid he was very physically frail so he couldn't even play with other kids and we made fun of him um He was very just depressed his entire childhood was was very um he was depressed and he uh was he he was so sick the doctor said he wouldn't live past 15 years old and that was the first time of many times people told him he was going to die and he didn't later the nazis captured him and said they were going to kill him and god delivered him then the communists captured him and said they were going to kill him and god delivered him so three three specific times um but he he said when he was looking back, he said all those friends he grew up with went on to to believe, and he wasn't saying this in a critical sense. He was just thankful. But he's like they went on to believe that like a career was going to make them happy, you know, as I would say, being attached to that career, and that a spouse was going to make them happy, and that um, money was going to make them happy, fame was going to make them happy. And he's not saying there's anything wrong with those things, but he said he was actually blessed because being as unhappy as he was made him see that those things wouldn't have changed something and he realized that there had to be something more and the conclusion he came to which is like for me like my when i read it in him and years later i was like this is my i reread the book and i was like this is my mission statement he said only two things in the whole universe are worth pursuing and everything falls under these two categories if they're relevant love god love other people and everything else should be tied to that if you do art if you work a career if you um seek religion or spirituality those are the two things that matter and everything should be anchored under those love god and love other people which of course he's getting from christ but he he realized just on his own that that was that was true and when i that that's an example of something that moved my heart and then As I, as I read more, he gives, he speaks from this place of, of suffering and he was sick all of his life. He was very frail. And then when he speaks about what suffering is for and he has this joy in his words. And I'm like, my life hasn't been as hard as his. I've had my problems. I've been depressed. Um, but like, I, I'm. I've been suicidal. I've I've cut. You know, I've had I've had struggles, but it's not as bad as his. And he's so joyful in his words. He has a real like. I it just seemed like a real piece. I wasn't sure, but it was enough that I was suspicious. And I had met that one priest I referenced earlier, who I met him, and I was like, this man, there's a tangible piece, like like music, like just a thing. It's just there. It's not an emotional stimulation in me. It's very calm, but it's like he, it's him that's different. Not something I feel like him. Um, and I felt it with elder Thaddeus that he could be like this. I could have been wrong, but, and then I started reading the practices he taught, how to guide your thoughts, how to think about other people, how to pray, why certain things happen and why we're miserable, why other people don't like us, how to change that. Um, and you know, thinking beautiful things about them, thinking about how to love them, uh, as examples. But I remember, I remember there was a point I was working at the preschool, and I was lamenting that I, I at the time I was the only dude that worked there. It was all women, and then me. And I was lamenting that I would hear all all my coworkers are talking about how they hung out together and went to a movie. And I and I would tell them like, "Hey, if you guys go to a movie, let me know. I'd love to join you." And they'd never invite me. And I'm like, "Okay, girl stuff. Like I get it. I totally get it. Like you you have other friends. Hang out with them." Um, And then another dude started working there and they invited him to all the stuff. And I was like, this hurts. Hmm. This sucks. And in retrospect years later, I think it was just very different personalities. Like I was just like, I was a nerd and none of them were nerds. He was like a jock. So it was like, these just totally different personalities. Um, The one girl I got along with was the other nerd and we would hang out. Um, And but at the time it just hurt so much. And I just felt such rejection as a codependent person. Like that was just like the worst feeling. And I remember, I still remember it was one of those core memories. I remember like I was taking the dishes to the dishroom to be washed. And I, and I overheard him and the two other teachers talking about going to some movie that'd come out last night. And I was just like, I, I closed the door and I walked down the hallway and I was like, this hurts. Like, I feel like worthless. I feel like a piece of trash. And I remembered Elder Thaddeus, who I'd been reading for the past few months, saying, if if something negative happens, it's a chance for your heart to be cleaned out. It's, it's a chance that if you say, thank God, that your heart is, has a little more room for him and you can become a little more loving to others. And I just felt this conviction. Do you want that? It's up to you. No one's making you. But like you're going to, this life's going to be difficult whether you, any way you slice it. So, so do you want to just feel really crappy or do you want to feel crappy and also say, thank you, God, because this helps me love you and love other people. And I could theoretically be that kind of person. And I went, I grit my teeth and I still hurt. I was in emotional pain. And I just went, thank you, God, because this helps me love you and love other people. And I kept doing that. And not every time. And as to this day, I don't do it every time, but I do it more than I used to. But that's the kind of thing that I've started doing. And I noticed that that was the first time I ever felt at peace about suffering. Like I just, suffering did not have a good answer to me. Um, and that was when I started to be like, okay, if I can actually become love and I can actually clean out my heart and actually care about others sincerely, not in that conditional way, but like I can get closer, I'm a million miles away, but even inch closer to that Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, that Christ said on the cross. Yeah, this is worth it. People can come in my presence and have joy and peace and healing. And instead of me devouring them, I can give them a little spiritual nourishment. This is worth it. And that was the beginning of me becoming a stable person. And it was so, it was so strong a change which I think the only test is long-term. Um, but it was so strong a change that when I first started encountering orthodoxy and started studying history, and I had that moment I talked about earlier where I went, oh my gosh, they have a good argument. I started arguing with all my Protestant friends and family to see if they could prove it wrong. I was like, maybe I could be wrong. And they just took as me, tried to like dominate them. Um, I'm a Myers-Briggs ENTP. I learn by debating. Hmm. Uh, and so I would argue with my family and they're like, we can't be around you anymore. This orthodox thing, they, they were like, it's like, they thought catholicism was bad and they were like this is like the worst cult version of catholicism because of it's how, how it's making you behave and i'd argue with them about church history and bible verses and within a year i started picking up from elder thaddeus saint Paisios, saint porphyrios these different modern orthodox saints i was reading and some of the fathers that they were like this is not an appropriate way to behave hmm. and i started realizing oh my gosh i need to shut up and it was really hard but i started forcing myself nope nope think about them pray about them mm.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. and having this cycle of orthodox readings and all these things helped remind me constantly keep my mind on it was a structure for this life and a year I, when i first started and they felt this way they actually had a family friend come and try and do a cult detox on me to argue me out of the cult i was in and one year later maybe a year and a half they they said we're really glad you're you're in this orthodox thing. We can really see that it's changed you mm-hmm. and in a good way. Mm-hmm. And they saw that I had gone from unstable to argumentatively awful to a person who had like actual peace and I didn't want to die anymore. And like all this stuff, I, I, I was like actually thankful God had made me and I sincerely could got, not get myself to feel that way. Mm-hmm. After years of trying in Bible college, I was like, God, I know I shouldn't want to die. And I don't think you're mad at me because I want to fix this, but I wish you would give me a button that I could kill myself and and you wouldn't be mad at me. I would probably press it. And I know you don't want me to kill myself. So I'm going to keep going and try and have some hope. But it wasn't until elder Thaddeus and the whole life that, comes with orthodoxy that my heart started to heal and have peace and now my family like even though they're still protestant um they love orthodoxy they're like yeah we don't feel god has called us yet and i'm like that's cool i understand they're like if god tells us to we'll become orthodox but and i was like that's the best i could ask for but my mom like watches orthodox videos they come to me they quote orthodox saints um so it's like a night and day difference but um yeah, anyways, Elder Thaddeus, that kind of stuff, like the way he told me, guide my thoughts, um, the saints say, see negative thoughts as an attack from the devil. Not that you can't think about something critically, like, oh, this is a bad thing. But if something is like destroying your peace, like I said earlier, we want peace. If, something you're, if you're thinking about your sins and it's making you really upset, that's probably not the kind of thinking about your sins that God actually wants you to do. Um, the saints say that like if it's if it's from God, it won't make you criticize yourself, but you'll do it with peace. You'll just be like, Lord, I did mess this up, like help me, but if it's like, oh my gosh, I'm such an awful person, that's actually something that we Orthodox would consider as a demonic attack. The demons want you to be really mad at yourself, either pharisaical, I'm so awesome, or oh my gosh, I'm so awful, and God hates me, blah blah blah, no, no no. the uh Saint Siloan says to tell yourself. Yes, I have many sins, and I need a lot of help from God, but he's merciful and gentle, and he will show me mercy. I don't know how much. I don't know what he'll do, but I don't have any reason to be afraid. I kind of add my own words there, Mm. but Mm. yeah. So that's part of the therapy, too.
0: (laughs) What about uh, public speaking? What about um, representing your beliefs to a wide, strange audience? What about... How are you, uh, using the internet as a vehicle, uh, to, are you called in that direction? That's, that's a loaded term. I know. Um, yeah, Yeah, I'm a, I'm a modern Orthodox prophet. So, uh, Oh really? Oh, prophets. You guys Uh, have prophets. I thought you just had saints and fathers.
1: I'm i I'm prophetic. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's there's well there's two answers to that question. There's what we should be doing as Orthodox, and there's what I do, which is you know questionable. Um, the Orthodox idea of evangelism um, can be summed up by Saint Seraphim of Sarov, a uh, nineteenth, believe nineteenth century Russian saint. Uh, he said, "Acquire the spirit of peace, and a thousand around you will be saved." Hmm. And of and the spirit of peace is like capital, you know, S. Yeah. Uh, spirit but the idea was that same thing as the music if you actually acquire god you don't have to preach it people not that you have to be silent but you don't have to preach it people you if you actually bear something that's different inside of you people recognize it um people that are hungry recognize it so and if people aren't recognizing it Maybe that's a good fruit for repentance and being a little bit humbled. Um, Mm -hmm. So so that's kind of our default. And then within that, kind of like I said with the intellect, it's not my chief anymore, but it has its place. There's a place to talk to people. There's a place for apologetics and answering people's questions. There's a place for bringing up orthodoxy, whatever it may be. Um but we're not as aggressive about it or attached to it. We definitely don't fuel ourselves like I used to by, oh my gosh, people are going to go to hell if I don't evangelize them. Um, like That's like, no, God will take care of people. You mm. work on you. And yeah. if in that process, God calls you to love someone and to tell them about the faith, yeah. okay, open your mouth, pray a bunch before you do it. That's probably wise. So um, what I do, I mean, I I talk and I answer people's questions and I... I really love simplifying things for people. That's one of my favorite things to do, come up with, like I've been doing metaphors and, and analogies, um, but I've learned that I have the best results when I say less. Uh, and I used to be <laughs> that person that would get in like a six, literally six hours, six or seven years ago, I was that person who literal six hours on my phone arguing on Twitter with some Catholic or reformed person. Uh, mm-hmm. And I won a ton of converts oh yeah Uh, yeah tons Um, but Hmm. yeah that's the orthodox idea of evangelism i would say is it's first and foremost your transformation um now i i watched your interview with michael and he said he gave the opposite answer which i would also agree with that the orthodox church should have been doing evangelism and we failed and honestly I think he's also right. I think maybe we should talk a bit more. And he said the, it's the bishop's job, and I agree. Um, hmm. so, like he said, unfortunately, some of us are orth- Orthodox YouTubers in their place. Um, and it's very unfortunate. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's I would, I would, and I know some of the history of it, The a little bit of the history was um, priests came to America and they saw that America was very like freedom of religion. And so these priests and bishops of like the Greek and Russian church were like, like, we don't want to make waves and be aggressive. That doesn't seem to be the American way. There seems to be, like, this this mixing pot of religions, a melting pot of religions. And that's what they thought, so they tried to be chill. But it basically led to, like, too much passivity. And so that's kind of become the norm. And thankfully, we have, you know, priests, bishops, and um, people who are, are kind of, like, getting out there and having discussions and answering questions. Because, like Michael said, people haven't heard about Orthodoxy and it's crazy i can't believe that i went through bible college and all and i had heard the word like a couple of times and here i am like getting a degree in guiding others in the faith of the the 2000 year old church apparently that i'm a part of and i don't know the only, the history of it like that was just crazy to me mm. that was mind blowing mm. so so there's definitely a place for the intellectual and the academic. And we have saints who are saints because St. Saint Justin Popovich was a philosopher and he engaged in all the realms of philosophy. Father Seraphim Rose was talking to Hare Krishna people and all these different spiritual movements. He was talking about Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. And a lot of my view on those as an Orthodox Christian come from him because he was just so insightful on them. Um, St. Nicholas of Japan was the first bishop, Russian bishop in Japan. And he, he called Zen Buddhism. I love this. He said, he called it the best of the pagan religions. And, uh, he, he was, he learned about Zen and he took it in and he, 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 he saw what was beautiful about it. Just as much as he said there was dangerous things about it. And, uh, that's, I think for all Orthodox Christians, it's our job to to be like that um metropolitan anthony bloom who was a a bishop in the uk he said what christ did was he went around and he looked for the beauty in everyone he encountered and his work was to draw out that beauty and sure he sometimes said go and sin no more but that was part of it but his focus wasn't on these sinners his focus was on how do i draw out the beauty and even when he's harsh to the pharisees and he calls them like a brood of vipers some of them repented some of them realized i am kind of being a whitewashed tomb i am being a brood of vipers and uh saint nicodemus came to him secretly it was like i actually want to learn from you um so everything he did was always forgive them father they know not what they do it was always with the beauty as the center and then the peeling away of that which veils it and keeps it hidden to make it more manifest and grow Mm-hmm. so
0: So now you are coaching, you have uh have some blogs out there, some some internet presence going on. Where do you think that's uh where do you think you're headed? Just going to oh. keep, keep coaching for a decade or so and then like yeah. get on a boat yeah, going I'm, to Serbia. I know.
1: It's it's different for everyone, but my life has definitely been, you know, where does the peace come from? The peace comes from the zen. I've I've been like Lord I could do the coaching forever. I could do something else. Uh, I don't know. Um, I've talked with my my last priest because I moved recently and my current priest, uh, Father Paul Trubenbach here in Salt Lake City. Um, if anyone's watching is in this area and has a chance to go to our parish, Father Paul is wonderful. Mm-hmm. highly recommend Saints Peter and Paul Orthodox Church. Um, it's amazing. come say hi. Um, mm-hmm. but um, I've talked to him about possibly going to seminary um i whether i have all the gifts required to be a priest is you know i have like a couple um but some of the other things that you need to be good at i don't know if i'm good at so we'll see that's kind of pending but that's Um, an open prompt it's a possibility yeah i've I've considered it um i'm also my current project i'm actually working on and i'm only just trying to talk about it because i want to make sure it's been more set in stone um there is a there is a orthodox men's coach on on Twitter, who goes by Ilya Coaching, and he's he's a very practical guy. He's focused on like habits and disciplines. Um, I'm I'm the opposite. In Myers Briggs, he's probably very S type. I'm very N type. I'm in the abstract, in the inner world. And our forces combined, we have we're a very holistic team. Hmm. And right now, we're working on a um, men's subscription Orthodox group coaching. Um, One of the issues we run into is that people can't afford our coaching. Some of the m- young men who need it most. Yeah. Um, and so this would be a way that we could have a reasonable income, but could also help a lot of young men by providing them a service that's a lot more affordable. And so we would have, we're we're, we're I'm almost finished with my part, um, but we're working on a curriculum that's first my section on the inner life and then his section on the practical skills. And it will be a video course that each week you watch one of the videos. And then each week we'll have kind of a webinar format and Mm. potentially have a speaker who's maybe an Orthodox priest or a nutritionist or one of my friends is an addictions counselor and Mm. have different speakers. And so and probably keep like an archive of these talks. So it would be something where you just pay this monthly fee and every week you have kind of a group. You ask questions, discuss the curriculum. So so that's not guaranteed, but that's a work in progress right now. Um, and God willing, it will it will come to uh, productive fruition. Are you so,
0: intentionally uh, focused more on men in your practice, or or do, is that how it's shaken out for you? Or is it?
1: My practice
0: has probably been fifty okay. fifty. like when I think about it. Yeah. Um,
1: but he he approached me with this idea, and his specialty is men's coaching. And I when I go online and I see the people who would need this specific program, who need like that camaraderie um, and who are very isolated and alone, um, mm. it's men. And the men who we would probably reach both of our communities on Twitter, I mean, my followers on Twitter are probably mostly young men, um, young catechumens and Orthodox men. Um, that's a majority I just see in the Orthodox Twitter community. Most women recognize it's very... Uh, you're going to get verbally punched in the face a lot by very zealous young men. So there's, there's not as many, but when it, when it comes to my actual practice, I would say that that's 50, 50. Um, I have a lot of, uh, I have a fair amount of women who are freshly converting from Protestantism, like moms a lot of the time Hmm. who will come to me as a specific demographic, just because they need someone to explain monastic ascetical practices that are from men, 1500 years ago explained to them in modern words and they're Mm. like how is this relevant to me how can i practice it um people who've been abused spiritually physically otherwise in their past a lot of those people come to me because i i have a gentle demeanor i wear flower shirts like in my sessions (laughs) like like Mm. that those i that's my specialty is people who have like strong shame narratives people who've come out of cults um one of my clients i'm thinking of like her priest just like He helps her and guides her, but she has such like a a paranoid reaction from a cult that she was in. Um, Hmm. And so I'm always like, no, I'm a skeptic. I get it. I get why that when your priest says that in his homily, that sounds like he's brainwashing you. Like, let's talk about that. You could be right. You could be wrong. And so she appreciates having this very like safe person. So that's another complimenting between me and, and Ilya coaching is uh he has like the men's discipline and i have yeah. like the men's nurturing like the the yeah. fun the fun tender dad and the badass masculine dad the two dad archetypes so yeah. um yeah so it works it works well and i see people all the time where i'm like i would not be able to help that person and i'm i'm very blessed because it seems like god always brings me the people that it's my skill set hmm. to to actually be able to help so because i I can only help who i Mainly, what I have what I have experience with myself. So
0: yeah. Where uh, when do you you to expect this program to be up and running? I we don't have any sort of date set. Okay. We haven't talked about that specifically. Imminently um, or eventually. I would like to
1: see it started up by the end of the year. Yeah. Um. Okay. And I think that's realistic. Um. I am working on the curriculum, which is. Like my part of the curriculum, which I'm like 80% done with. And I have the last bit outlined, which outlining stuff is like the big challenge for me. Cause what order do I actually, I know yeah. the order of things like a story it really matters. And so I currently have it organized and maybe just you know, a book someday or something. I don't know, but yeah. it's currently organized who God is the first, it's three sections. The first is who God is and who that says we're supposed to be. We're supposed to bear love. We're supposed to be relational like the Trinity. We're supposed to um, understand the universe in a way that we can put that to use because he's the Logos. So we kind of learn who we are through him. Hmm. The second section is, and you kind of see me cover some of this in this whole discussion. The second section is mainly Genesis 3 and the fall. Like what happens with Adam and Eve and how we replicate that every day. So it's kind of like who we're meant to be How we fall from that like in our everyday life what keeps us from god there's a section there about how the devil works and how demons attack with thoughts according to the fathers and then section three is about the saints so there's always a model for us um the third section of the model is the saints and how do we come back to god so who are meant to be how we fall and how we rise back up and and embrace him and return to him And so that will be my part of the curriculum. I'm almost done writing it. Hmm. And then Ilya will have his section, which is like these, I wish I had it here, but he has, it's like seven or eight categories. That's like family work habits. Um, different categories to like focus on in a real practical way. Like what are your, in your actual day-to-day life, not in your thought life, like I'm working with in your actual day-to-day life, what's keeping you from your mission and your purpose. Yeah. He's very focused as I really love it on mission and purpose. Um, cause I know elder Thaddeus, the love God, love man. When I made that my mission and purpose, it changed a lot just to have something like that. So part mm-hmm. of the coaching is to help each person that comes in develop something, um, of that caliber. Mm-hmm. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. and how can people find you the the link will be in the description but if you say it out loud it's always helpful
1: yeah uh, if you go to thaddeusthought.com that's my main website Um, it's got like little social media buttons, it's got a link to my YouTube channel, I have about nine talks on there, Um, my strategy with my talks, I'm very perfectionistic with them, I want they're like, you know, say around an hour on average, but I want a book level of content in an hour so yeah. they're long but I try and cover something exhaustively like for example I have a video on doubt so if you ever have wondered like what's the historical view on doubt I cover some of those scriptures I already talked about in this video um, I have one on singleness and marriage um, I have one and I'm, I'm single so clearly I should be talking about marriage um, I have one that's on sin like a historical view of sin and all the nuances of it that are a lot more complicated than like you broke a rule um, it's a lot deeper than that Um, so I kind of spend an hour just like talking about all these scriptures and all these church fathers. So, um, that's linked on my website right at the beginning. It says like quick links. Um, and then it says YouTube, so you can go on there. But, uh, yeah, Thaddeus Creative is my YouTube channel. And then my username across like the 20 different social media I'm Mm -hmm. on and the five that I actually use is, uh, Jack Falcon, J-A-C-F-A-L-C-O-N, but you'll probably link that below. But yeah, Twitter, Jack Falcon, Instagram, Jack Falcon. Um, I think I have a Facebook page. So, and that's where I find most of my clients. Most of my clients um, see a lot of patristic content and stuff about the integration of psychology and orthodoxy. And uh, a lot of curious Protestants will just be like, this seems like spiritual support I'm looking for. Mm. And so they'll just approach me um, on social media. Yeah, that's probably 90% of my clients. Mm. Handful
0: of word of mouth, mostly people who see these posts. So. And what is that behind you? Not the wood thing, but this container. There's like this container thing. What's in there? A guitar. Why?
1: Uh, because theoretically, one day I would like to be someone who knows how to play a <laughs> guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, one time too, but yeah, my my life is all all around me is is theoretical projects. Oh, you know, really? The okay. VR headset I bought and I was I played it like. I've I've played my VR t- set ten times, but I've had it for like
0: three years. So, okay.
1: yeah, I'm a tinkerer. I'm yeah. I like new things, fresh
0: things. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. do Do you have like an expertise in a one instrument or one implement of war? Even.
1: Like I am one of those one of those people. I'm uh, as one as one uh, man said. I, one one uh, author said. He said. Uh, he said the critic is like the eunuch. They can see it they can understand it they can describe it they cannot do it themselves yeah. and i'm like that with music I, I i know lots of bands i love music i listen to it all the time i have like 300 playlists on my spotify that are all curated and stuff hmm. um i have my vinyls and and i have about six different little musical devices and i'm a master of none of them so hmm. yeah i think i made like one song on some software on my computer that's on hmm. a soundcloud somewhere but yeah, I'm, I'm, i my dad's the same as me. He, except, uh, I'm the, I'm the end type, like in my head dealing with philosophy and psychology and he's the doer, he's a general contractor, but oh. he's, he like has, he's a locksmith, glass worker, auto glass, uh, sheet metal, plumbing, painting. He just does all this crazy stuff. And I'm like that for like ideas and abstract things. I know mm. lots of different movies, lots of philosophers, lots of psychology books, but I've not de- dove that deep into, to, uh, many of them. So connected, connected person. I like the web a
0: lot. Absolutely. I didn't know what I was going to get, but I'm very grateful for, uh, having spoken with you and learning through you about your faith. And, and, uh, I guess the practice of, uh, the practice of love, the practice of, uh, living out the spiritual reality of love. Mm. Sounds like, uh, there's a reality to what you're saying, but also a soundness in, in how you're saying it too. Uh, it's very edifying. So thank you.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm glad. I, I've been interviewed on a fair amount of Orthodox channels and uh I feel like we went a lot deeper, which is kind of cool. Uh oh. Like yeah, we dove we dove really deep, uh,
0: which I enjoyed. So yeah, thanks for listening. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm gonna end the recording. No. Boom. And...